Yeah, great. So, <laughs> how are you feeling? Thanks for agreeing to do this. Oh, no worries, guys. Hope it's uh, okay. I'll take all the practice I can get. And I'm still at my very early stages of doing this. So, I'm sorry if I'm not excellent. No, that's right. And in fact, from our point of view, it would almost seem like, you know, if, if you're exceptional, that's actually probably not, not a great thing for the audience. Like, you know, we want realism. We want the fact that all of us are really, really, you know, we all need to improve and we're all pretty crap at the very start of our Viva journey. Like you hear anyone at the start and they're not going to be fantastic. So that's far more useful to everyone. Um, I think. Yeah. And actually Pat, the reason excellent. why I chose you was because you're excellent. So you've got, uh, Oh, you're putting pressure on him. Oh, man. thanks, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> that's the uh, His own. So I'm not trying to make you feel better, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly got high expectations. That's right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. And today we have a very special episode. And I'll actually hand it over to Stan to introduce what we're going to do today. So today we've got Pat and one of our trainees who has kindly offered to um, Vibra to be here present for a Vibra so that uh, you guys, the audience, can actually listen to how um, a Vibra actually runs. And I know there's been a lot of requests from the audience out there for something of this, uh, of this nature. So hopefully, Pat will get a lot out of it and you guys will get a lot of it out of it as well. That's great. And as we were discussing just before, you know, the fact that this is real life, we're asking questions in real time. And, you know, I reckon, the fa- first of all, you know, kudos to you, Pat, because you're actually putting yourself out there in this kind of forum where it, it's public and that can be, you know, pretty intimidating for anyone. Like there's plenty of people who wouldn't be able to do this. So I just reckon that's really great because I don't know if I'd, I'd be able to do this back when I was doing it. So that's really right. well done, Pat. Thanks so much for your time to help other people do better. Just before we um, go on, Pat, do you want to just tell, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, like about your training and which where you're at at the moment. Also, hi everyone, I'm Pat. I'm one of the Nordestin trainees in Victoria. I'm the second year in the happy space between the written and the Viva uh, primary exam. And I'm currently in Ballarat, enjoying the freezing cold mornings. It's been <laughs> great. And how, how's your preparation been for this exam? Probably similar to a lot of people been studying for the last 12 to 14 months. And I've just started um, my Viva practice in the past week. So incredibly rusty. And I've found that my sort of knowledge um, is already sort of fading away after the written. <laughs> uh, and hope that I can claw some back with more Viva practice in the, the next two months. And that's a very common um, thought that a lot of people do have, that they feel that as they progress from the written to the Viva, that the knowledge they have for the written doesn't translate to the Viva. And it's also because the Viva is a completely different uh, type of exam, different technique, and, you know, the thought processes are a little bit different. But once you get them right, you'll find that the information that you learn from your written can be translated through a different paradigm, okay? So it's a really good thing to do a lot of Vivas so that you get that practice and you'll find that, yes, you will make those connections uh, as you do more. Now, just before we get started, like... Do you want to share with us like how, like some of the thoughts, some of the emotions that you're feeling? Uh, at the moment, so feeling primarily just extremely tired and over the entire exam process and extremely keen to get it all finished in <laughs> terms of starting Vivas <laughs> for the moment. Um, it's very nerve wracking. I feel like um, a lot of the time 
I know the information, but it's hard to articulate and particularly hard to present in a coherent manner. Um, and therefore the questions that I feel that I know the core content, and then you might get a really curveball question. We feel that perhaps I don't know the content as well. Uh, and having a lack of structure and a lack of content is not a very fun place to play at the moment. So um, yeah, they're sort of my general thoughts. <laughs> I mean, those are really good insights and those are very common themes that a lot of trainees will experience, especially the, um, especially as they begin through their Viber journey. So as you progress, hopefully those feelings will dissipate and you'll get more confident. And that anxiety which you have, you know, will also, you know, that it's often good to actually be a little bit anxious, don't you think? Because mm. it actually builds up the adrenaline, builds up the excitement, but you want that to be um, sort of siphoned off to a very positive response. Mm. Like stress, stress is almost the wrong word. Like a little bit of stress is good. It makes mm. you activated. It makes you ready it's compensatable. Uh, but as soon as it decompensates, that, that's a bad thing. So, you know, when I hear the word stress, oh, there was a really great TED talk about this where, you know, if, if people perceived stress, but they perceived that they could get over the stress, they actually had all these really good outcomes. Like there was a really big study that showed better longevity, less morbidity and mortality if a person had stress that they could handle versus no stress at all and stress that they couldn't handle. So that was a really interesting, less, less mortality over a couple of years when they studied thousands of patients. Fantastic. So for today's session, Pat, oh, and for the audience as well, what we're going to do is we're going to run through two vivas. So of those two vivas, each vivas will be 20 minutes each with four stems and each stem will be five minutes. All right. And this is a really special episode. What we're going to do is um, because we're doing two vivas, we're going to split them into two episodes. So uh, Pat, what we're going to do is, yeah, I'm going to ask you a stem. And then after that, in five minutes, I'm going to ask you another stem. And then Lahiru will ask you the third uh, and fourth stem. And then after that, we can have a break and, and have some feedback. That sounds good. All right. Now, you ready to start? Let's get started. <laughs> I'm ready to start. All right. So, Pat, what is nitrous oxide? So, nitrous oxide is an inhaled anaesthetic agent. Uh, it's used as a volatile sparing agent during general anaesthesia, uh, for sedation or for analgesia during labour. And what are the advantages of using nitrous oxide? So nitrous oxide has several uh, chemical, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic advantages. Uh, chemically, it's odourless. It's not directly flammable and does not interact with uh, plastic or rubber tubing. It's cheap to produce compared to other inhaled agents. Pharmacokinetically, uh, its administration uh, benefits from having a low blood gas solubility of uh, 0.45, resulting in rapid uh, alveolar equilibration and therefore rapid onset and offset of action. Um, it has a high minimum alveolar concentration of 105 and is therefore often administered in high concentrations. Uh, this results in both the concentration effect and second gas effect, both contributing to more rapid onset and offset of action. And it undergoes minimal uh, organ metabolism and is primarily uh, exhaled unchanged. Um, pharmacodynamically, it has analgesic properties, uh, likely via interaction with the NMDA receptor and acts as a volatile sparing and opiate sparing agent. Um, 
it has minimal effects on myocardial contractility and vascular resistance and minimal effect on the response to hypercapnia. Uh, it has no effect on uterine tone. Okay, good. So you said it's got a high MAC of 105. How was that tested? Or what does that mean, 105? Um, so that means it has to be administered at a concentration of uh, 105% normal atmospheric pressure. Uh, so it has to be delivered as a hyperbaric um, solution uh, to test that, uh, I guess. No, nope. good. And what are the disadvantages of using nitrous oxide? Yeah, so breaking it down into the same three categories. Um, physicochemically, a major disadvantage is that nitrous oxide is a significant greenhouse gas and has significant environmental effects. Um, it's stored as a liquid with a critical temperature around 36 degrees. Um, so I guess in warmer Australian climates might pose an explosion risk uh, in storage if its uh, canisters are overfilled. Um, pharmacokinetically, it's given, uh, given that it's administered in high concentrations, this reduces the available FiO2 of the inhaled gas mixture and also reduces the FiO2 of inhaled gases on emergence uh, due to diffusion hypoxia. It causes expansion of air-filled spaces, so it's not good for middle ear surgery or patients with pneumothoraces. Pharmacodynamically, it increases cerebral blood flow, increases cerebral metabolic oxygen consumption, and increases intracranial pressure, so it's not a useful agent in neurosurgery. Uh, it causes a mild increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. Nitrous oxide is highly emetogenic, so it has high incidence of post-operative nausea and vomiting uh, and is associated with bone marrow changes and peripheral neuropathy with chronic exposure. Uh, and there's also concerns that repeat chronic exposure can cause teratogenicity, I think mostly in rodent models. Now, you mentioned about nitrous oxide's critical temperature. What, what does that mean to you? So what critical temperature is? So critical temperature is the temperature uh, wherein an agent um, will continue to be, uh, will only be a gas. It can be converted back to a liquid um, regardless of the pressure exerted on it. Okay, good. And what's Entonox? Entonox is a gas mixture um, with a pre-made concentration of 50% oxygen and 50% nitrous oxide, I think mainly due, uh, used in labour. Okay. And how is it that it's stored as a gas compared to normal nitrous oxide? Uh, so it's stored at a gas at room temperature because of something called the pointing effect, two liquids with variable um, critical temperatures uh, have a lower, I think, um, critical temperature, a higher critical temperature. They, they can be gases <laughs> when used in combination. Okay. Um, now, what is a sympathomimetic? So a sympathomimetic is any substance which mimics the physiological stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. And how do you classify sympathomimetics? So I guess they 
classified in a number of different ways as direct acting or indirect acting agents. Um, direct acting agents bind directly to the receptor resulting in the cellular uh, effect and they can be further divided uh, into alpha or beta selective agents or non-selective agents and uh, further divided again into alpha-1 versus alpha-2 selective or non-selective uh, alpha activity or conversely beta-1 uh, or beta-2 selective or non-selective beta activity. Um, Indirect agents can be classified as those stimulating catecholamine release, so something like amphetamines, or those inhibiting catecholamine reuptake, or I guess a mixed uh, action of both. Okay, good. And what is tachyphylaxis? Uh, so tachyphylaxis is a pharmacodynamic phenomenon wherein increased drug is required to produce the same magnitude of physiological effect. It develops rapidly uh, over seconds to minutes. And how is that different from tolerance? So tolerance is another pharmacodynamic phenomenon, uh, again, where an increased drug is required to produce the same magnitude of effect. But contrary to tachyphylaxis, tolerance develops slowly over days to months. Which sympathomimetics can cause tachyphylaxis? Uh, tachyphylaxis is mostly caused by indirecting, indirect acting sympathomimetics. Uh, they're at the highest risk of exhibiting tachyphylaxis. Uh, this is because uh, endogenous catecholamine stores become depleted with repeat indirect acting uh, sympathomimetic stimulation. This results in less uh, endogenous uh, catecholamine release and therefore decreased cellular response with repeated dosing of the indirect acting agents. Okay. And a drug like dobutamine, can that cause a reduction in effect over time? Uh, dobutamine can. Um, this is mostly through... Um, Decreased sensitivity, I guess, of um, the receptors rather than the catecholamine release as dibutamine is uh, also directly acting. Okay. And what do you think about the time course compared to something like ephedrine with its reduction in activity? Yeah, so the time course for decreased dibutamine response would be uh, longer. So it would be more of a tolerance type of pharmacodynamic phenomenon rather than tachyphylaxis seen with the indirect agents. Now, would you see something similar with adrenaline or noradrenaline? You, you would, but to a lesser extent, given that these are uh, endogenous agents. Okay. And w with regards to... Um, other inotrope drugs. Can you classify some of the inotrope drugs that, uh, that you know of? So classifying inotropes, um, I guess there's, uh, there's several different classes of inotropic drug. Um, so there's direct and indirect acting as well. There's um, calcium itself. There's drugs that increase calcium uh, sensitivity, uh, such as levosimendin. Uh, which increases um, the sensitivity of tropomyosin calcium. Uh, 
there are different analogs like glucagon and histamine, which increase intracellular calcium, um, and agents such as uh, phosphodiesterase um, inhibitors such as milrinone. Good. Okay. Any more? Uh, there are. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah, good. Okay, we'll move on now. Pat, thanks for that. We're going to start with the next part of the viva. Yep. What are the determinants of intracranial pressure? Um, so intracranial pressure is defined as the pressure exerted on the cranium in millimetres of mercury, and it's determined by the volume of the three major contents of the skull. So that's uh, blood, cerebrospinal fluid, and brain parenchyma, and it's governed by the Munro-Kelly Doctrine. Yeah, so tell me, what is the Munro-Kelly Doctrine? Uh, the Munro-Kelly Doctrine describes uh, that when an increase in volume of any of those three uh, contents within the skull, um, if that's not met by a equal uh, compensatory response, uh, pressure within the cr- closed space will rise. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned pressure. How would you describe pressure, or what is the definition of pressure? So, pressure is uh, the force exerted. Um, over an area. Mm-hmm. And what are some units? That's u- how I would define it. Yeah, it's good. What, what are some units for pressure then? Uh, so so centimetre, centimetres of water, millimetres of mercury, uh, or the pascal is the international unit of pressure. Now, you mentioned uh, the factors that determine intracranial pressure. How do we reduce intracranial pressure? Uh, so intracranial pressure or ICP can be manipulated by uh, varying the volume of any of the major skull contents. Uh, so it's the brain, the blood and the CSF that I've said. Mm-hmm. Uh, this can be done through uh, hyperventilation. So um, this results in increased uh, exhalation of carbon dioxide and lowers the arterial partial pressure of carbon dioxide, causing cerebral vasoconstriction therefore reducing blood volume within the skull, therefore decreasing ICP. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be manipulated through positioning. So upright positioning uh, causes increased hydrostatic pressure gradient from the brain to the thorax, uh, increasing venous return, increasing venous drainage from the skull, decreasing cerebral venous volume, mm-hmm. again, decreasing skull blood volume and therefore intracranial pressure. Um, we have several pharmacological mechanisms we could use. So administering a hypertonic medication such as mannitol mm-hmm. uh, could reduce ICP via an osmotic effect within the brain. Uh, it alters the uh, uh, starling forces of the brain capillaries mm-hmm. being hypertonic relative to the brain parenchyma, resulting in movement of fluid from the brain parenchyma to the blood and just to just to clarify, so uh, you mentioned venous blood factors. What is what is a mannitol use or hypertonic saline? How does what does that decrease? Which part of the Monroe Kelly or factors affecting uh, pressure? Yep. So sorry, mannitol reduces um, the volume of brain parenchyma. Mm-hmm. Keep going. What else? Um, yep. So that's about it for mannitol for me. And then there's surgical. Uh, intervention. So I guess you've got neurosurgical placement of um, extraventricular drains or codma drains to decrease uh, cerebrospinal fluid volume, uh, which decreases 
uh, intracranial pressure, um, as well as interventions such as uh, lumbar punctures or CSF drainage um, and more invasive neurosurgical procedures such as decompressive um, craniectomies, removing the hematomas or offending space-occupying lesions or even leaving um, part of the bony cranium removed. Now, tell me about the factors that affect cerebral blood flow, which you can manipulate for intracranial pressure. Uh, cerebral blood flow um, can be determined by um, the mean arterial pressure, the driving pressure um, to the brain. Um, so an increase in mean arterial pressure will result an increased driving pressure to the brain tissue, um, an increase in cerebral blood flow, so that can be manipulated through vasopressive medication um, or with a variation of cerebral vascular uh, resistance, so increasing uh, cerebral uh, vascular radius um, with a number of different uh, medications, including uh, volatile um or intravenous anaesthetic agents can decrease uh, the cerebral vascular resistance by smooth muscle dilatation uh, through the hagen uh equation of um, vascular resistance. Sounds good. And just to move on, what is ketamine? Uh, so ketamine is a phencyclidine derivative uh, general anaesthetic drug with uh, anaesthetic and analgesic effects. How is it used in anaesthesia? So ketamine is used as a general anaesthetic um, for induction of anaesthesia and as an analgesic. The anaesthetic dose is about 1 to 3 milligrams per kilogram IV, causing rapid onset of general anaesthesia via antagonism of the NMDA receptor in the central nervous system and produces dissociative anaesthesia. Um, can also be used intramuscularly um, for either sedation or general anaesthesia. Um, as an analgesic, typically given in much lower doses, 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilo as a bolus and infused at 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilo per hour, um, likely acts as an analgesic by antagonism of the NMDA receptor, the dorsal horn and the spinal cord, inhibiting pain signal transmission uh, from the primary to the secondary order neurons uh, in the dorsal horn and also facilitating descending inhibitory pathways. Are there any other uses of ketamine? Um, I guess ketamine can be used as a sedating agent um, for patients who are non-compliant, perhaps with an intellectual disability or patients, uh, paediatric patients, when intravenous access can be difficult. Now, what are the advantages of ketamine for induction? Um, so again, I guess going back to the structure, ketamine has several pharmacodynamic, kinetic and pharmaceutical benefits. Um, pharmacodynamically, it's relatively cardiovascularly stable. Um, specifically, it causes a combination of increased circulating catecholamines and a mild decrease in um, myocardial depression. Uh, therefore, it has a minimal uh, overall net effect on systemic vascular resistance and maybe a small increase in cardiac output. Therefore, it's favourable in trauma and shocked patients. Um, it maintains your respiratory response to hypercapnia and preserves airway reflexes 
uh, this could be uh, beneficial to prevent aspiration, but maybe um, an advantage or a disadvantage depending on the situation. Uh, as I've said, ketamine is a potent bronchodilator and may increase uh, respiratory rate and therefore minute volume also. Um, it causes rapid onset reliable anaesthesia whilst also providing potent analgesia, so therefore is uh, opiate sparing and results in potentially improved intraoperative and postoperative pain and decrease uh, in chronic pain. Um, kinetically, it can be administered via a number of different routes, uh, IV, buccal, intranasal, what, intramuscular. What are the mechanisms that it may work on decreasing chronic pain? Um, so I guess primarily it stops or acts to inhibit um, pain signal transmission um, in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord by the NMDA receptor. So there's less um, stimulation of the NMDA receptor in the spinal cord and therefore less long-term potentiation of these uh, receptors, less phosphorylation of these receptors. And also it's been postulated to work by increasing um the descending uh, inhibition pathways as well. Sounds good. Now, what are the disadvantages of using ketamine for induction? Ketamine, uh, pharmacodynamically, um, due to increasing sympathetic tone, it increases your myocardial work, and therefore, I guess there's a small increased risk of increasing myocardial infarction. Um, from a respiratory point of view, uh, preserving airway reflexes is undesirable for intubation. Uh, it also causes increased respiratory secretions and therefore chance of aspirating these secretions. Neurologically, it has several um, disadvantageous effects, um, causes significant hallucinations and emergence delirium, therefore is less suitable in children and those with uh, vulnerable brains, uh, pre-existing delirium in the elderly patient, um, causes increased cerebral metabolic activity and oxygen requirement, uh, and increases the risk of brain tissue hypoperfusion. Um, it's highly emetogenic, causes increased salivation and increased intraocular pressure also, and I think increases in, uh, uterine tone, That's uh, great. which may, may not be bell. desirable. You'd hear the cool. bell right now. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Excellent. Well, well done, Pat. done, Pat. Well done. <laughs> how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, okay. Disordered. Um, like I'm just clawing this information from the back of my mind somewhere and word, say, vom word vomiting it out. It didn't feel disordered to me. It was very good. Okay. Very good. It was ordered. Uh, I want you to know it was ordered. <laughs> it was mostly ordered. Uh, so it's quite interesting that even though we felt that you did a very good viva, mm. you felt that you could do better. Was Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I just... um. I guess it's so different to just um, just having to speak your answers out loud um, mm. rather than just having a structure where you can write them down and you can see that you've structured your answer rather than I just feel like I'm talking along like an idiot. But um, it's just interesting, the difference in the technique. There's no doubt that your content is excellent. It's mm. all there and it's solid. Mm. And I can certainly understand how you feel that you know, you you don't have it right now. And the only thing that, you know, like what, what will make you think that you could perform at, at a higher level? Like how, what would you need to do to perform at a higher level? Even though uh -huh. we think we think it's very good already. 
oh, I think probably two things. I can just do more of them um, and feel like I've got like these default structures um, for regardless of what questions are being thrown at me. Um, and I guess observing other people as well, picking up on their techniques. And I guess just seeing how um, kind of other people perform to feel like we're all at the kind of similar level. Because at the moment, I feel like I'm just kind of floating in an endless sea of stupidity by myself. That, that's, <laughs> a, that's an interesting point because how do you, I think as medical people in general, we will be harsh on ourselves until we are certain through marking or comparison that we are actually worthy. I think that's a very common thing. So that, that would be interesting. If you were to compare yourself to other people I examined, that was really, really good. Okay. So just definitely, definitely know that and keep that level up. Um, plus the examiners aren't giving you feedback. Like a good examiner shouldn't be saying, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah. Tell me more. Yep. Like you're not going to get that. So it will feel naturally like you're just talking gibberish and someone's just giving you a blank expression. So just imagine how abnormal the exam situation is in any other time when you ask, when you ask, when you're asked a question, you then talk and people facilitate and nod and go, "Uh uh-huh, that shouldn't happen in this viva. So the normal constraints of communication, the normal rules of communication are now gone. And all you have is your knowledge and your structures to back yourself. And right now you have very little to compare it with, but will be your first reference point that we were pretty happy with. And, you know, you make a good point in terms of, you know, doing more vivas. And I think, you know, for yourself and, in fact, for all the audience, member, audience members, what they should do is listen to the questions that were asked and then go back and think about how you would answer it. Because the only difference between you answering it now and you answering it in a couple of weeks' time is that when you get the familiarity of the questions and you know what the answers will be, you'll find that you answer a lot more confidently. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Like that's the only thing and it's, it has to do with the pace in which you answer a question. So, for example, when you answer what are the advantages – oh, sorry, when I asked you what are the advantages of using nitrous oxide and you're talking about, you know, nitrous oxide has several chemical, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic advantages. Like it was, like, it was at that pace. Whereas – if you, get, if you get asked that question again, you'd be like, nitrous oxide has several chemical, pharmacokinetic, and pharmacodynamic advantages. Clem- chemically, it's odorless, direct, not directly flammable, and does not interact with plastic or rubber tubing. Pharmacokinetically, like, do, do you see how that tone, that tone modulation, that pace is completely different? And the reason why it becomes different is because of that familiarity of that question. And also, your structures were fantastic, right? So... As I remember in some of the times I asked you a question, instead of saying a preamble of pharmacoceutically, pharmacokinetically, you actually just said, pharmacodynamically, it's this, 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 this. And so I already knew you had a structure because you mentioned the word pharmacodynamically, but you didn't waste any time by saying there are pharmacoceutic, pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic things that affect this. That's now three seconds that you'll never get back. Whereas when you went into it, in a number of occasions, you went, you straight went into pharmacodynamically. This is this, this, this. I already knew you had a structure, and you didn't waste three seconds to um, get me, you know, to show, show me in pain, painful terms what the structure was. So I thought that was a really good examination technique. Um, that meant that you got through a lot of stuff quickly. Thank you. Good. All right. So that's a wrap up of our first viva. Excellent. So um, 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much, Pat. So obviously we're going to record another Viva now, um, and the usual stuff with this. Thanks so much for listening in. Thanks for thanks for you know sharing this. Thanks for subscribing and thanks for all the input that you guys have given um, whilst listening to our podcast. And stay tuned for the next episode. And look, if any trainees are interested, or if they're brave enough like Pat, you know, email us and we'll hook up a session where we can Viva you and you know you can help yourself as well as helping. Uh, the community as well. Yeah, that's right. And the the way we're structuring this really is, you know, pretty much just a phone call. Um, yeah, we'll just ask you these questions, and we can even narrow it to certain topics if you if you'd like as well. Just to you know make it a, an experience where again, yeah, you can learn from this, and everyone listening can learn from this. So, thanks very much, and see you next time. <laughs>